virtue of women, the virtue of so I don't want that. What I want to know is what every virtue has and only virtue has. In other words, he's looking for an essential definition. And so Socrates explains to him what he wants. He said, I want an essential definition, every and only. And so then he says, given that, Mino, what is Arete? And Mino says, well, there's the virtue of men and the virtue of women, <laughs> the virtue of soldiers, the virtue of generals. And Socrates is looking at him and realizing that this is not a conversation. <laughs> right. Because Mino won't listen. All right. So Mino won't answer the question. He's explained to him several times what he wants him to do. What I want you to do is to tell me some property that every X has and only X has. Like, for example, if I were to define for you even number, all right, I would say it's a number divisible by two without a remainder. Every even number has that property. Only even numbers have that property. Okay? If I were to ask you an even number, Mino, and you were to say to me, four, six, and 100, I'd say, Mino, I'm not asking you for examples of even number. What I want to know is what makes a number even. If you tried to list all the even numbers, that's impossible. The number line is infinite, and human life is finite. So you cannot define an even number by giving examples of even numbers. What I want then, Mino, is not examples of virtue. What I want to know is what virtue is, what every example of virtue has, and only examples of virtue have. All right, you understand Mino? Mino says, yeah. He says, okay, Mino, so what's virtue? And he says, well, there's the virtue of men, the virtue of women. <laughs> right, I mean, you have to understand how funny this is. This nitwit, right, will not listen to Socrates, right? Does, I mean, in other words, thinking is really hard work, and Mino doesn't want to do that. He's already been assured that he's intelligent. He knows a great deal. He got taught by Gorgias. So he knows what virtue is. And there's the virtue of men, the virtue of women. You know, Socrates says, no, look, Mino, all right? Listen to me. I'm asking you for a particular kind of definition, which is the only real definition. It's the kind of definition we use in mathematics. It is not an accident that Socrates gives his examples, the ones he defines, from mathematics. He says, look, a polygon is a bounded area within a two-dimensional space. Every polygon has that property. Only polygons have that property. See, Mino, what I'm looking for? Every and only? Okay. Mino says, you remind me of a torpedo fish. Because when you sting me, you make me numb. See, I knew all this stuff before I started talking to you. Now I don't know Jack. But that's not because I'm stupid. It's because you bewitching me. You bewitching God. Socrates says, absolutely. And he's thinking, of course, look, you were numb from the word go. <laughs> you have lived your life numb. Right? You think I did it to you? Believe me, that's the least of your problems. But Mino's a well-connected, wealthy young man from a prominent family. He's been educated by the best teachers. And people, not just Gorgias, but lots and lots of people, tell him, you're a really great guy. You are just so full of arete, it's remarkable. And he said, how can I be 
saturated in, in excellence if I didn't know what it was. Okay. Socrates is saying, well, I can't get you to think at all. There's just not much I can do with this guy. He says, make a point to you, Mina. All right. Get the slave boy over here. And he does a geometry problem with the slave boy. He talks about a square inscribed within a square at the midpoints of the, of the sides. And he says, what's the ratio of the sides of the inner square to the sides of the outer square? At first, because the slave has never been taught geometry, he makes a guess, and it's wrong. And then Socrates leads him through with a series of questions, not with a series of answers. Socrates never tells the slave boy anything. He says, what about this? Is that less or greater than that? Is that equal to that? Eventually, the slave boy can see, oh, this is the answer. And he gives the right answer. And he says to Mina, this, uh, actually, it's, it's worth considering. Um, before he starts into this discussion, he says to, uh, to Mina, uh, the slave, has he, is he a Greek, and does he know the Greek language? All right. Once we know that, we know that it's possible to help this boy by the proper stimulus of questions to figure out for himself what the answer to the question is. What that means is he's gone from a condition of ignorance to knowledge without being given anything. How did something come out of nothing? Clearly that makes no sense. Ah, perhaps we all were omniscient and then forgot all of our knowledge when we were born. And then all whatever knowledge you get, whatever insight you achieve, all right, is just remembering what was already in your psyche, in your soul. Plato is going to make a similar case at the end of Book 10 in the Republic. It is not clear how seriously or literally to take this idea that all knowledge is but recollection. Plato could be just being ironic with us, saying, look, I don't know, but this is, a, is, this is not impossible. So he, teaches the, he shows the slave boy the mathematical truth, and he says, here's, here's the deal, Mino. Ignorance is actually far better than miseducation. In other words, simple ignorance, there's a cure for that. I can actually ask the boy the right questions. He'll figure it out himself. But once someone has been miseducated, not only do you have to move them from ignorance to knowledge, but you also first have to destroy all that misunderstanding, which is by no means easy to do. You're the best example of that, Mino. Yeah. What's worse is that Mino, Socrates was asking Mino questions the same way he was asking the boy questions. And Mino, if he had just answered Socrates' questions, would have arrived at knowledge. That's exactly right. But the boy was willing to think because he was ordered to. Mm -hmm. Nobody gives Mino orders, and he doesn't need to think in order to be smart, which is a great advantage. Now, Mino is a first-class nitwit. In other words, in all the dialogues, he's one of the dumbest. Or no, we have different quads. Think of the Theotetus. I mean, that guy's a, he's a, he's a good interlocutor. Um, Mino is not. He's lazy. He's, self, he's complacent. He's self-satisfied. He's not very brave. In other words, he's exactly what you don't want in a student. You're actually what Gorgias wants in a student. There we go, provided you have the money. So 
he uh, ends up saying, you know what, this is an aporia. An aporia is a, an impasse, a point where a dialogue breaks down and just doesn't go any further. Many of the early Platonic dialogues are aporetic. They end in a, in a standoff where we don't know what the answer is. Right? They tend to be short and thought-provoking, question-provoking. Now, at the end of the Mino, Mino's friend, Anatus, who's a politician, comes by, talks to Socrates. Um, Socrates asks him some questions, makes him look foolish, as he does with all kinds of important people. At the end, Anatus says, watch your steps, Socrates because if you disrespect people that can harm you, they will harm you, all right? Your day is coming. This is a foreshadowing of the Apology and the Crito and the Phaedo, all right? So this is an example of the real accusers of Socrates, politicians, poets, and sophists. All of them see Socrates as an impediment to them getting the, satisfying their desires. All of them are incapable of dealing with the fact that Socrates is laughing at them in public. Not only Socrates, but these kids are following him around, and they're laughing at him in public. Anatus isn't willing to take that. And Socrates, he goes on, and Socrates says, you know, your friend Anatus thinks I'm his enemy, but he's really not. But I don't have any animosity towards him. He seems to have some against me, but that's because he doesn't understand what's going on. So why don't you go talk to your friend Anasus, tell him that Socrates means him no harm, that Socrates is not his enemy, and tell him that you are just full of wisdom. Because when we couldn't define it in my essential way, we found out we didn't need a definition at all. And we found out that whatever virtue and excellence are, you're full of it. It must have been sent to you from the gods. So now we know what arete is. It's something that gets sent from the gods that we can't define, except that you have a lot of it. And so does Atlas. The end. All right? Now, this is intended to be an ironic ending. Socrates actually has an idea about what virtue might be. But since Anatus isn't willing to exert, or rather, Mino is not willing to exert himself, you can only go so far with Mino. Now, here's something you need to think about, and this is, this is pretty strange, all right? This is how Socrates wins many of his arguments. He asks for a definition of a thing, and it's an abstraction, justice, virtue. Okay, if you try and give Socrates a set of examples to define the term, Socrates will say, no, I don't want examples. And then he'll trot out the example of even numbers. And he'll say, look, what I want is every, some quality every x has and only x has. Now, here's the problem. You will notice that when Socrates asks people to define things, the things he's asking them to define are things here in the world. For example, if you go to a court, you will find justice being dispensed. Makes sense to me, all right? Um, justice is something that people do. It's practice that human beings undertake. I don't think that bears have ever been just. It doesn't apply to them. And, but it does seem to apply to human beings. Some of them are just, some of them are unjust. 
Okay. There's another kind of thing. Things like books. You familiar with this? Okay. What is the essence of bookness? Well, you all know what a book is, right? I mean, you bought the books for the term, you read the books for the class, so you're not baffled by book. Okay, so what is it? What property does every book have but only books have? Yeah. A collection of knowledge in one volume. Okay. Um, would have to do about what, with the question of one volume, and what would it do with picture books? Um, Okay. Um, is it, are these pictures a coll are, are collections of knowledge? I think they certainly could be because you can convey plenty of information with the picture. Okay. Um, books in another language. It's still knowledge. I mean, Provided somebody can read it. it. What about one of my favorite books? Yeah, this is, this is from my own library. It's one of my favorites. The Codex Seraphinianus. Write that down something for you to play with. This is written in the, towards the end of the 20th century by an Italian. It is a book entirely written in a made-up language. It's like that thick, too. And it has, because he's a, he's, a, he's a painter, he has a whole bunch of illustrations of them which make no earthly sense. I mean, look at this. I mean, I can't even explain to you. I'll have to bring it in to show it to you. I mean, yeah. I mean it's, this is a rare book, but it's a great book because this is where knowledge has finally gotten us. This is, this is the end of post-modernity. Books written in languages no one understands, illustrated by pictures no one understands. Okay, but here's the problem. Is the Codex Seraphinianus a book? Since it's written in a language no one understands and no one makes any sense of the illustrations either. It turned out that after 20 or 30 years of lots of people working on this, they managed to figure out the number system by working out the, num the page numbers, and the number system is base 23. Is that? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it may be that the rest of this means something. Nobody knows. Seraphinianus is dead. <laughs> so now we just have this. I'll bring this book in. This will completely blow your mind. This is the most, look, it cost me $500 to buy this. They're really expensive. They're uh, small lots. They're hard to get. And I'm keeping mine. <laughs> right? Because it's something to look at and think about. Like, no, if you ever thought that human beings had some limit to their perversity, you really have to see this book to believe it. This will completely blow your mind. I'll bring it next time. But coming back here, um, suppose I were to move from books. Um, What's the definition of a tiger? Any of you know what a tiger is? Every one of you knows what a tiger is. So what is it? It's an animal that can run really fast. Okay. It's orange. Okay. So it's a day-glow gazelle. Not <laughs> that is. Uh, a gazelle? It's kind oh, oh, yeah. herbivorous animal. Well, you said the first one. Yeah, part. well, we're going to paint them. Arc. Um, what's a tiger? What's, what, in other words, what's the essential part of the tiger as opposed to all those peripheral things? What's the essence of tigerosity? Well, 
give you the punchline, which we're going to get towards the end of next year. Uh, what do we do with Wittgenstein? It turns out that things in the world around us, like tables and chairs, all right, um, probably don't have an essence. And when you got taught about these things, no one said, sweetheart, this is the, this is the essence of a chair. This is the essence of a chair. We said, well, that's a chair, that's a chair, that's a chair, that's a chair. And then we ask sweetheart, what's that? And if they say a chair, then they understand. <laughs> but there's no point here where we have to give them the essence of chairness in order for them to understand what a chair is. Okay, um, that's true of chairs, but it's also true of tables, it's true of tigers, it's true of books, yeah? Yes, he does. All right, but Socrates doesn't recognize it. Socrates isn't intentionally uh, lying. Socrates thinks that any real knowledge is modeled on mathematical knowledge, which means that any real definition is going to be modeled on mathematical definitions. That's why he gives examples like even numbers or bounded polygons. All right? Yeah. You know how there's the explanation of a soul as like a, a simple thing and God as a simple thing? Mm -hmm. like, um, is there an argument to be made that because a soul has to be explained, we, we debate about what is the essence of soul, and we try to define it, we try to understand it, and we struggle with that, uh, but that's actually a more complex thing than a chair that everyone looks at and we say, that's a chair, that's a chair, that's a chair, and nobody needs that to be explained, that there's something more inherently understandable about so let me, let me understand you. Um, is, there any un, is there any uncertainty about what a chair is? No. Okay. Is there any uncertainty about what a table is? No. Is there any uncertainty about what a soul is? Well, people debate about it all the time, so I think okay. there can be. Okay. It'd be very interesting to find out what that was. Um, here's the idea. Pure abstractions, like we deal with in math, like, say, uh, a right triangle, all right, that has an essential definition. It's a triangle, two-dimensional, where one of the angles is 90 degrees. That's what a right triangle is. Every right triangle has that property. Only right triangles have that property. My point is that the essential definition applies only to pure abstractions. In other words, it doesn't apply to things like chairs or tables. Now the question emerges, is virtue like chairs or tables, or is it like even numbers? Socrates desperately wants to believe that everything, if, it's, if you can really know it and, and it really exists, is a pure abstraction, yeah? Um, so for something like math, where it's like deductive, where like you say that a square is, Right. Like. Right. Every and only. Um, so, is it possible for something that's not deductive? Clever girl. Yes. What if and this is going to break Plato's heart? What if everything is not math? <laughs> Wouldn't that suck? Because then, what Socrates would be doing is demanding that his interlocutor do something that's impossible. Which is why, no matter what they say, it's always wrong. On the other hand, when Socrates wants to give you an example of the sort of definition he looks for, he always chooses something mathematical to, give the, to make as his example. 
That's why it's possible to define essentially a right triangle. There's no essential definition for a tiger. Is a white tiger a tiger? Depends. Is a three-legged tiger a tiger? A two-legged tiger? A tiger with one leg hopping up and down? Is it a tiger or not? Well, the problem is it's not clear because the boundaries of things that we, de that we define by example, like tigers and chairs, always is going to leave a gray area which leaves you uncertain as to whether this is a, a tiger or not. All right. What's a chair? Well, that's a chair, that's a chair, that's a chair. Uh, the throne of a king is a chair. Is a doll's house chair a chair? Mm, sort of. You know, it depends on what, you know. It, it varies. So there's no essential chairness. There's no essential bookness. There's no essential tigerness. If you get caught up in, an, in a discussion with Socrates, he's going to ask you to define things that are defined in practice by example, and he's going to ask you for the essence of it. What if nobody knows what the essence is? And, still worse, what if it doesn't make any difference whether everybody knows the essence of it? We still deploy the word chair and tiger with considerable effectiveness. When I say that is a chair, none of you are baffled by that. Despite the fact that none of, not one of you knows the essence of chairness. Well, what if it doesn't make any difference whether we don't know the essence of chairness due to the fact that there's no such thing? So Socrates is inviting his interlocutors to turn whatever they know about into mathematical knowledge and to define it the way mathematical entities are defined, whether we are talking about mathematical things or not. This is why Socrates is 100% effective. He's asking you for something that has, is the logical analog of the last dig digit in the decimal expansion of pi. There's no such thing. Yeah. I was going to say, how can he say that you, like, you can explain the essence of things in math? Or is he not saying Oh, you know, he is saying that. You so can't how, explain the essence of things in math. How, how so? Um, because of the kind of thing they are, um, the definition, these are purely abstract things, and your definition is similarly abstract. So if I define for you even number, I'm going to say it's a number divisible by two without a remainder. Every even number has that, that quality. Only even numbers have that quality. Yeah. And we have no problem using essential definition for pure abstractions. Okay. Okay. On the other hand, for things like tables, chairs, books, tigers, or for that matter, justice, um, it's not clear that it has an essence. Socrates is presupposing that it does. Yeah? Can you prove that it does not have an essence? I don't think so. I mean, I'd be interested in trying, but... Like, couldn't, no matter how many essential definitions you kind of get, isn't it always possible to find a gray area? Um, no, essential definitions have no gray area, every and only. Right, so it's ostensive definitions, which, are, which is what we mean by definition by example. Right? Those always have gray areas. So for something like justice? Well, it depends how we conceptualize it. Is it a pure abstraction, like right triangle? Which means, it, incidentally, it never appears in this world of space and time. Or is it one of those things that exist in space and time? In which case, you're making a, a category mistake in demanding an essential definition. And since Socrates has then sent them on a snipe hunt in a place where there aren't any snipe, 
Well, amazingly enough, they come back with no snipe. Yeah. Can you explain further what you mean by abstraction? Yes. Um, a pure thought or idealization. For example, uh, well, uh, let me see. An abstraction would be something that doesn't have material properties, like the idea of a circle. that's a two-dimensional space whose boundaries are equidistant from its center. Every circle has that property. Only circles have that property. Here in this world, we may draw roughly or approximately circular things, but they're never completely perfectly circular. Perfect circles are pure ideas. They don't exist in this world of space and time. Does that make sense? So, yeah, abstraction. Yeah. Like, the idea of a circle, not Yeah, that's it. Well, again, Particular instantiations are only roughly circular. None of them are perfectly circular. The only perfect circle is the pure idea of a circle. Let me give you another one. Just um, Consider the idea of the square root of negative one. Well, that has no instantiation in the world. And yet, it's a pure abstraction. And we're able to, to describe the square root, to define the square root of negative one, essentially. It's... Uh, it's an unreal number that multiplied by itself gives you negative one. Yeah. So are you including things like souls in this category? Because different, pe different people will make different arguments for what the soul is and what kind of category you want to place it in. Mm -hmm. All right? um, so, uh, for example, a medical doctor may regard your soul as your consciousness. Once you're dead, he may regard you as not having that anymore. Where did it go? Well, maybe it died with your body, and maybe it went to heaven, and maybe it went to talk to Socrates in the realm of the blessed. I don't know. But the point is, Socrates, like Plato, is committed to the idea that real knowledge is math. Why? Because blessed relief, it was only in examining geometry that Plato saw finally some real answers. We've been talking about all kinds of stuff and not getting anywhere. But when we went to work on mathematics, we all got the same answers. And it turned out there was nothing to argue about. Uh, the, uh, the theorem of Pythagoras is the same for everybody, not just Pythagoras. So what that means is for the first time with mathematics, Plato has encountered objective knowledge. What I mean by objective or absolute is that it's independent of space and time. Arithmetic is true now. It's going to be true 100 years from now, and it was true 500 years ago. It's true among the Eskimos, it's true in China, it's true in Polynesia. It's true on Mars. Yeah. So why would he then waste his time going about trying to define things like justice? and? Because he doesn't know that he's making this mistake. I don't think Socrates is a sophist. He's not dishonest. He's actually made a mistake in trying to shoehorn all of knowledge into math. Right? You can see why math would be attractive, finally some real answers. On the other hand, um, if this is the, our, example, our exemplar of excellent knowledge or of real knowledge, the attempt to turn, to turn all knowledge into math is very dubious. Right? It turns out that books and tables and chairs and tigers are not mathematical things. They're material things that take up space and move around and do stuff. Right. Couldn't, couldn't they be mathematical things like I forget who it was was explaining like the 
the musical notes are like yeah. in mathematical things. That's, and that's true, it. Pythagoras. Yeah. Oh, right. So, wouldn't that be coming like coming from a material thing? Or yeah. That? Okay. Uh, remember, this is what Plato's going to include in his view of knowledge in the Republic. He's going to say, yeah, those Pythagoreans, that's why he's hanging with Pythagoreans when he dies, those Pythagoreans are smart. They found at least some element of knowledge. The question is, how do we turn everything into this kind of knowledge? Yeah. Now, it turns out that different tones seem to relate to mathematical abstractions. And when Isaac Newton does that experiment with the prism and the beam of light, he shows that vision, that color has different angles of refraction, but that's mathematics too. All right. So um, that's the hope. Plato's hoping that the Pythagoreans are, in the right, are moving in the right direction. Math is real knowledge, and insofar as we can turn everything into math, we can turn everything into real knowledge, we can just wrap, wrap it up. We can finish the problem of knowledge. All right. The difficulty is, is that books stoutly refuse to become abstractions. Tigers are not pure ideas. They are large carnivorous cats. Go figure. So in other words, Plato wants to turn everything into math. The problem is, well, put up or shut up. Okay, so what is the essence of chairness? I don't know. Plato never tells us, neither does Socrates. In the intervening 25 centuries, no one has been able to discern the essence of chairness. And yet, throughout the English-speaking world and in many other linguistic communities, people have no problem talking about chairs. In other words, work hard at not confusing yourself. This is something you learn from a uni. All right? Do not lose track, once you get to a university, of stuff you knew when you were in first grade. Plato doesn't think that the table is real. Well, that's an unusual belief, Plato. Me, I'm not having any problems with its unreality. It's pretty much doing what I expected a real table to do. I don't know why, but I mean, I couldn't really give you a definition of what I really think essence is, but it's difficult for me to think that a chair couldn't have an essence because if it didn't, then it couldn't exist. Okay, here we go. You are the child, you are the great, 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 great granddaughter of Plato. You think the chair couldn't exist without an essence. Fair enough. Unless I'm mistaken, there's a whole collection of existing chairs in the room, and I have no clue as to what the essence of chairness is. And when I ask my students, and I've been doing this for a long time, um, none of them have known what the ch essence of chairness is. But there must be something more to it than just its material. Why? I don't know. <laughs> you see, that's, that's the problem. You, in other words, you've assumed what Plato's assuming. And we have better grounds for assuming that 25 centuries ago than we do now. All right? Think about how you teach a child the English language. Johnny, this is a chair. This, or this is a table. This is a table. This is a table. You don't say, Johnny, let me tell you what the essence of tableness is. One, because you don't know. Two, because Johnny doesn't need it for anything. Apart from that, though, it's a great idea. You see the problem? I do. <laughs> so, we, this non-existent thing that we don't need is not a big intellectual impediment. There seems to me like there's some sort of a relationship. Like, these two chairs that I'm looking at, there's something that both of these chairs 
share that makes them both cherries, and that's something to do with the ethics. I don't know. Okay. Do you believe in the uh, Gulf of Mexico? Yeah. All right. What's its essence? But you know what the Gulf of Mexico is, right? Well, if you are correct when you told me that in order to know something, you need to know its essence, how can you tell me, one, that you know what the Gulf of Mexico is, but two, that you don't know what its essence is? All right, so once you find out what the essence of the Gulf of Mexico is, how will that change your relationship to the Gulf of Mexico? Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's just like syntactical difference, but if you're talking about essences and natures of things, mm -hmm. the nature of a thing will impact the way that you use it and it'll impact the way that you act. Because if a chair doesn't have a nature, then I can do whatever I want. Doesn't matter. Yeah, you could throw it into the fire. Yeah. And if a person doesn't have a nature, I can do whatever I want. Well, hold it. Um, you can throw it into the fire. The chair doesn't have a nature. Um, if we're all freezing to death, it's actually the right thing to do with the chair. But. In that sense, essences or natures or whatever they may be do have an impact. What do you mean by impact? On, on our actions, because no, 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 no. I don't. I didn't ask you what they impacted. I asked you what you mean by an impact. They influence whether our actions are moral or not. The nature of a thing plays a part in the virtue of a situation. Okay. Well, how? Does my lack of knowledge of the essence of chairness um, cause me to do immoral things with chairs? I didn't say that. It does. Okay, sorry. Uh, I'm trying to understand. Sure. Um, so it's not necessarily a lack of knowledge of the essence and a lack of ability to articulate knowledge of the essence because all of us are sitting here saying, what is the essence of the chair? I don't know. Um, and okay. we're also debating whether there is an essence of the chair. Okay. Uh, and lack of ability to articulate doesn't necessarily mean that uh, it, it's, it's not the same thing as the essence of the chair, because some people don't. Well, I, I, I didn't follow you there. Some people don't acknowledge the nature of human <coughs> beings, and they say you can do whatever you want with a human being, but that wouldn't change the fact that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. Mm -hmm. So the essence doesn't change based on their knowledge of the essence of the thing. Mm -hmm. So okay. why does our lack of ability to articulate the essence of the chair mean that well, um, in the absence of, of being able to, to explain it, um, why should we believe that, that one exists? In other words, think of it this way. You learn the English language without ever being told about the essence of chairs. And you <coughs> sat in chairs and talked about chairs and done things with chairs over the course of your lifetime. And all pretty much successfully interacting with other people that speak English and chairs. So my question is, why do we need an essence of chair? What's it for? And two, how do we know that one exists since no one's ever encountered it? I've been doing, I've been teaching Plato for 35 years now. And in all my classes, no one knows what the essence of chairness is. All right? Um, it's a strange run of bad luck if chairs have an essence, but no one's been able to tell me what it is, because I myself don't know what it is. Yeah. Like Plato, you pick examples that uh, serve your argument. Yes, well. of course. Clearly. Uh, so, what about things like human beings? Do human, what about beings, have, do human beings have an essence? Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, you, could, you could describe them as having an essence, but I don't know. In other words, uh, 
what would count as evidence for either side? This is something I recommend to you. Before you undertake an inquiry, stop and ask yourself, what am I looking for? It's so, it greatly improves your chances of finding it. All right? And in this case, in cases of most inquiry, what we're looking for is evidence. So before you undertake the discussion or the inquiry, find out what counts as evidence so that way you know what you're looking for. Otherwise, evidence could come up and shake you by the hand and you wouldn't know it for what it is. So what would be evidence for whether human beings have an essence or not? I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting problem. Yeah. So, circles have definitively we can, can figure out the essence of a circle yep. or of a triangle. I would say Plenty so. of people work with circles and triangles every day in their life or have in the past without ever stopping and pausing to consider what is the essence of a circle or a triangle or figuring out what it is. What are you asking me about that? I mean, we don't know what the essence of, uh, of uh, well, we know the essence of pure abstractions, pure mathematical entities. So there we have the essence of them. Um, what was the second part of your question? People are able to effectively interact with circles and triangles despite not, not having, a, as you put it, a real instantiation of a circle or a triangle. They're able to interact with the idea of the circle. Right. The interacting with the circle in this world is not possible because all the circles in the world of space and time are made up of matter, and matter is made up of these little things whizzing about in their orbit. Whereas a circle is a continuous uh, line that's curved equidistantly around its center. All right. In other words, we're going from understanding a, a absolutely true abstraction to working with a, a flawed real manifestation of it. Right. And do we have definitive grounds to say whether or not something like a chair or a table has an essence? Well, so far, I haven't seen, I mean, Again, if you buy into the platonic ontology and assume that nothing can be real unless we have the essence of it, um, I think it's a bluff. In other words, there are lots of things like uh, book or tiger that I don't know the essence of. And yet I'm a native speaker of English and I, I deploy the English language in a way that most other English speakers understand me. And I can talk about chairs and tigers despite the fact that I don't know what the essence of chair or tiger is and neither do people I'm talking to. Since I don't need it for anything, and apparently the people I'm talking to don't need it for anything, why do we need uh, this thing that no one's ever encountered? Yeah. Um, this is going back to like how do we know that something has an essence? And I'm not sure if this hypothesis holds water, but like, could you say that things have an essence because they have a beginning? Like chairs in and of themselves. A temporal have... beginning. Right. Yeah. Like they were created at some point. Mm -hmm. So like. Chairs were not created in and of themselves. They didn't create themselves. So like, there was a time when the chair was created. So I feel like whoever or whatever created chair had some sort of basic understanding of the essence. Of the okay, chair. that'd be the demiurge who's operating from this pure idea. Let me take an example. We'll, we'll consider. Consider a hill of sand. This is not mysterious. It's kind of an everyday thing. Okay. Um, does a hill of sand have an essence? idea of it would, right? Okay, so what's the idea of a hill of sand? Well, isn't that what we we're saying, that the idea of things can have an essence? Well, yeah, provided it, this idea actually exists. Now, I have some reason to believe, for example, that ideas like numbers or straight lines or right triangles, yeah, I have reason to believe those exist in purely ideal ways. Um, is something here in space and time, does that have an essence? 
how would we know? So, something that is round, like if I were to draw a right. circle, is not a circle. No. But no. somehow it it's roughly circular. Consistently and definitively points our minds towards the abstraction. Or the other way around. Right. Okay. Okay. So from which end should we, we rightly attack this question? Because we have chosen tables and we, we seem to know that they're real, mm -hmm. but we can't, can't figure out what their essence is. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, without you know, knowing their essence like we might have a circle, is it, is it really fair to just approach it from a matter of I don't know what the essence is, but I see this thing before me, so Plato must be wrong? Um, well, my sense is that if you ask any collection of first graders, we bring them into the classroom, because they'll remind you of yourselves, you know, 15 or 18 years ago. And we say, class, what's this? And they say, table. And then you ask the very strange first grade question, class, is the table real? And they look at you kind of strangely, and they say, well, yes. <laughs> now, here's, here's my goal for you in, in getting a university education, that you not confuse your thinking to the point where you don't know what you knew when you were seven. All right. Um, yeah, I think the tables are real due to the fact that I interact with them in a way that, well, I'd be inclined to deploy the term real there. Many people would. Uh, my class of hypothetical first graders would. So, um, since I've never had anybody successfully tell me what the essence of a chair or a table or a tiger or a book is, um, what grounds do we have for believing that any such thing exists? Since we don't need it for anything, we're getting along just fine. Yeah. So, like, although we maybe we kind of like the idea of an essence for a chair, um, because we can't prove or give you the essential essence of a chair, then we should not believe in it. Like no. Um, a wise person proportions their belief to the available evidence. What evidence do we have for the uh, essence of chairs, tables, tigers? So you ask if a pile of sand has an essence, or a pile of sand does not have an essence, but like a grain of sand or whatever they put up will have an essence because whatever like the properties of that, they're always going to act the same in every x and only x. Like that will apply to how it. Like if you go down to the That's very so interesting. I think you can say that material things can have essences, just not when you construct other things out of material. Okay, so simple empirical things have essences. Okay, I'll bite. Um, what's the essence of a grain of sand? Well, I don't know science that well. So okay, so you think science knows? No, it's made of silicon. Okay, silicon. And if you study silicon yeah. and look at how it chemically reacts with other, I don't know, atoms or whatever the proper term is, like it's always going to act the same way. How do you know? Well, um, how can how does induction, observing things, tell us what the future is going to look like? <laughs> we'll get to this. Look, you're, it's an intelligent response. Um, 
I'm burdened by knowing what Hume thinks. You'll be burdened by that in a year. But at this point, um, the question is, um, if you're telling me that something like a grain of sand has an essence, I'd like to know what the essence is. You tell me it's made of silicon, essentially. Okay, and then I ask, what is the essence of silicon? And then you'll tell me that it's made up of atomic, of atoms. All right, that's what silicon is. And then the atoms are made up of subatomic particles. And we keep on cutting and cutting, so we get quarks and gluons and muons and all the whole galaxy of uh, particles that the standard theory tells us exist. Okay, um, what's the essence of, say, a quark? say that it has a purpose, um, what's the purpose of silicon? I don't know. I mean, it, um, look, it's a very sensible kind of objection you're raising because we use uh, words sometimes loosely and we assume that, I mean, for practical purposes, that what's happened in the past will continue to happen in the future. So what silicon did in the past, we expect it to do tomorrow. But the problem is that this is called induction. Knowledge we get by looking at things, right? As opposed to deduction, which is deriving it from definitions. Gets what you do in math. Okay, the problem with that is that induction never gives you certainty about what's going to happen in the future. In other words, think of an astronomer. He goes out and looks at a star one night, two nights, three nights, a hundred nights. And he says, It's a great star, I'm studying it. 101st night he goes out and it's blown up, it's gone supernova. Okay. Every once in a while, induction surprises you. And which means that you can't get absolute certainty from induction. You can only get it from deduction. That's why Plato likes it so much. Okay. But the problem is, you're talking about silicon or a grain of sand. And we only have inductive knowledge of, of silicon. We haven't derived that from axiom. And that inductive knowledge can't possibly give anybody certainty. Can yeah, but if you just, you have to take some things, like, you kind of doubt everything. <laughs> okay. My sense is that you have, you're onto something good here, but that will need a, a, a more extensive reading list for me to be able to put the pieces together. All right? All of you ladies, I'm quite sympathetic, sympathetic with the idea that the world gets really weird without essences. All right? On the other hand, I suspect that the world is really weird. It's not my fault. I didn't make it that way. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you. I tried to figure out what the essence of chairness is for 35 years, and nobody knows. 
And you say, how do you know that it doesn't exist? Well, I could do it on another 35 maybe, but my sense is, is that we're reaching the point of diminishing returns after 70 years of nobody knowing what the essence of chairness is. And yet, everyone here sits in a chair and deals with chairs with no problem at all. So what is the downside of not knowing what the essence of chair is, whether it exists or not? No, what it means is that you have to live with the fact that uh, our boundaries for things we ordinarily talk about, like tables and chairs and tigers, are fuzzy. At Christmas time, you're going to go, or you're going to go home at Christmas time, and your mom is going to have the tree and all the food and all the presents, all that jazz, and she's going to take, take, take out her phone and she's going to want to take pictures of everyone because that's what your mothers do. Okay. She's going to say, stand roughly there. And you're going to say, essentially, what location do you want me to be in? <laughs> and she'll say, stand roughly there. Roughly there is a place. It's roughly there. <laughs> now, there's no point in telling your mother she doesn't understand philosophy properly. And until she specifically gives you the coordinates you're supposed to stand on, all right, that she can't take the picture. <laughs> stand roughly there. You speak English. <laughs> In other words, there's no problem to have here. Roughly there is a place. The Gulf of Mexico is a thing. If I asked you what the boundaries of the Gulf of Mexico is, the answer is nobody knows. I mean, roughly, it's separate from the Caribbean Sea and from the Atlantic. Where it departs, I don't know. I don't think anybody does know. And yet, we deploy the term Gulf of Mexico without any problems. So why do we have to fix this thing that isn't broken? Could be, but if we don't have the words for it, then what grounds have we to believe it exists? It seems that all the other languages in the world don't have a word for it either. I mean, the pre-Socratics didn't have a word for matter, and yet here we are, just like we talked about with them. Okay. Um, yeah, it took them two or three hundred years to develop the idea of matter. Um, we're 25 centuries on from Socrates, and still nobody knows what the essence of chairness is. Yeah. I think that's kind of a dangerous argument because we don't really have the words to describe God either. Mm. But, um, well, look, let me go back to what I, when I started with the, asking you the interesting question, what does coffee smell like? All right, and nobody knows. Here's the deal. The fact that nobody knows how to explain what coffee smells like does not prove that coffee is odorless. Coffee has a very distinctive smell. It's just that words are not robust enough to describe this. So when you say that uh, God is indescribable, I don't find that surprising at all. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means that our words fail to do justice to it. But doesn't that also mean that since we can't describe the smell of coffee or the nature of God with words, there could also be essences that we just can't describe with words? It could be. Um, but we have as much evidence for those as we do, say, for the, the ghost of Marley you know, in uh, a Christmas Carol. Right. We, we've seen as much of one as the other. Do you, want to, you want to hold out for the existence of the ghost of Marley, too? Yeah. Well, we do have some evidence, because when we say this is a chair, this is a chair, and this is a chair, they recognize some quality 
that, let me step back, if they didn't recognize some quality that was uh, exhibited in all the things that we pointed to, how would they, how when we pointed to the next thing, would they say, oh, that has the same, oh, that's a chair? Um, Wittgenstein gives us the answer. He okay, says that terms have uh, what he calls a family resemblance. So all the chairs look roughly like chairs, and then there may be one, I don't know, pick your example, uh, a doll's house chair. Well, we don't know whether we want to include that or what we meant by chair. It depends on the circumstances. In other words, for all the definitions of all the things in the world around us, the boundaries are fuzzy. The only thing is you those clear, precise, essential definitions are pure abstractions, pure mathematics. All right? So, yeah, what we're teaching the, the uh, child, we're teaching their English, uh, we say, that's a chair, that's a chair, that's a chair, that's a chair, that's a chair. And then we point to that thing down there, we say, that's a chair. And if they say yes, they understand it. Um, it doesn't mean that there aren't cases where we're going to be at odds about whether we should call this a chair or not. It's a doll's house chair, chair. Maybe, I don't know. Right, but each chair still has properties that are similar to other chairs. Well, that's the thing with family resemblance. Every once in a while, you get the sport. You know, in a family full of blue-eyed blondes, you get... Um, dark hair and eyes. Yes. So they're still a smith, but they don't have, it doesn't seem to have the properties that link it with the other smiths. Yes, but as, as long as we're talking about the resemblance, those are real qualities that each, each instantiation of that thing has. Mm -hmm. But the borderline cases are going to be cases where someone attributes them to having the uh, uh, common quality, where some don't. In other words, we're not in agreement as to what that common essence is. We just use the word. I'm happy to acknowledge that there are borderline cases, but there's the if there are such things as common qualities that things can share, if I can uh, look at two things and say that these two have a common quality, um, then there is some, what we've done is that we've abstracted some quality that's present in both things, and we've understood that quality, and we tend to refer to that quality as an essence, as a, as a, uh, it's a, it's something that makes this different from other things. That's what, it, that's. I'm trying to follow this. So, for example, if I have, um, I don't know, if I have the, what would be a good example? Um, if I have a bunch of tigers, and I say, that's a tiger, that's a tiger, that's a tiger, so we're teaching children how to understand the word tiger. We then come upon, let's say, the three-legged tiger. All right. Is a three-legged tiger a tiger? That's what I, I need to know from you. In other words, does it have that quality that it shares with the other tigers, or does it not? So you're asking me about the borderline case. I'm yeah. asking you about all the cases that aren't borderline. Okay. Um, my sense is that uh, what we're doing is making generalizations about what we see, and you're right. They see, the tigers have, something, have things in common, which is what makes them tigers. The problem is, if then you make, take the next step and you say, what's the essence of a tiger? Um, I'm inclined to say that there's no such thing, that we just clump together a bunch of things under the rubric tiger. For example, I mean, let's take another example from the world of the senses. Um, the spectrum of colors, you know, orange, oh, violet, indigo, blue, green, yellow, orange, red, seven spectrums of colors. Okay, um, there are languages which treat light blue and dark blue as being 
two different colors. There are also languages which treat orange and red as being light red and dark red. Okay. There's no one right way to slice up the world. Do you think red has enough in color with orange to be part of the same color, but light blue and dark blue don't? Um, wherever you draw the boundaries, all right, um, it's always on some understood similarity between things. But the problem is going to be that, well, this is actually what, what we get in uh, the Theotetus, the idea of introducing young Socrates. Why is young Socrates there? The point is, Plato has figured out that words do not denote natural kinds, which is why Socrates can refer to both the philosopher and this young man. Um, I think what we're, what we're, when we're trying to attribute, say, an essence to tiger or to chair, what we're looking for is to attribute some, some essential property of tigerness to the tigers and chairness to the chairs. But suppose we split tigers up into, say, uh, males and females, or left-handed or right-handed, or north of the equator or south of the equator. Well, whatever holds them together again, would be an arbitrary way of connecting these things. Imagine there are some languages that don't distinguish between tigers and lions. Okay. So I'm sure the people that, that, whose language doesn't distinguish between tigers and lions see some similarity between them. Yeah, I think that's likely to be true. But the similarity is going to be fuzzy, and there are always going to be doubtful cases. I'm happy to acknowledge that not, in fact, maybe most words don't designate natural kinds. But that doesn't mean that there aren't any natural kinds. If there's a real similarity, then there's some natural kind that we're encountering. Okay. Um, question is, now, how are we going to determine what counts as a real similarity? For example, this hypothetical language, which has only one term for both tigers and lions, all right, are they failing to grasp the real dissimilarity of them? In other words, are they slicing the world up the wrong way? So I didn't say that there was a hypothetical language in which each word uh, corresponded. Yes, I did. Right. I, 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 I so talked I, about that language. Imagine a language where we don't distinguish between tigers and lions. It's impossible to imagine such a thing. Yes. My question is, are they splitting the world up wrong? Or is that an arbitrary way of referring to large, dangerous felines? Because the fact that you can describe them as large, dangerous felines shows that you've seen some real similarity between the things. Okay, but it leaves out things like cheetahs and leopards and stuff. Yes. We're also large, dangerous felines. Yes. So you can take this, this quality and apply it to all sorts of different things in the real world. That's what I mean by an essence. Okay. My question is this. When you slice the world up into these qualities... You can always define something more exactly or less exactly. Yeah, but I'm not talking about more or less exactly. I'm saying when you ch wherever you choose to cut the, 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 the spectrum up. You can always have a more general class and a less general class. Okay. So well, I would take, the, for example, the spectrum of visible colors. Um, is there something about light blue and dark blue which makes them two, at, two uh, qualities of the same color? Not necessarily. Right. That's, that's what I'm driving at. And the same thing with light red and dark red, orange and red. You can keep clumping them together and put them together. But when you say that orange and red, for example, have some similarity, which allows people in some language, not ours, to make them only one color, 
the question would be then, um, is there an essence of red-orange? It doesn't matter because you recognize that they're colors. So that they, okay. you, you, you have, within, within any genus, you can, have, you can separate it into various species uh, in, in a variety of ways. You can uh, delineate it more and more, uh, have more delineations or less delineations. Uh, but nonetheless, you still recognize, you, you describe these things as colors. And when you say color, I know what you're talking about. Uh, the, it's because there's a real thing which corresponds to color. Okay. When you say you know what I'm talking about, I believe that you do. Could you tell me what the essence of color is? Maybe if I thought about it for long enough, but okay. maybe not. My point is, maybe there's an essence of color or chair or table. Um, I have never seen any evidence to that effect. You might be right that maybe there's evidence lurking out there, someplace I haven't found, but uh, it seems to me that uh, language is working pretty well as it works right now. And that all of you have no problem deploying things like words like tiger or chair or table and communicating effectively. If you don't need to know the essence of these things in order to communicate effectively, what do you need them for? What constitutes needing something? Um, logical requirement? I don't think, I know there's, I talk about chairs pretty effectively, and when I point to this chair and say chair, everybody in the classroom knows, all right? Um, I don't need, in order to be able to communicate with you about chairs, any knowledge of essential chairs. Yeah? Couldn't needing be um, kind of subjective? Um, hmm, okay, um, if it's subjective, and a question of opinion, not a question of fact, then there's nothing to argue about. So that, that just calls a halt to the argument. All right. But the question is, somebody might say, well, isn't, isn't arithmetic knowledge subjective? I wouldn't think so, no. Why not? I like that idea. It's absolute knowledge. Um, we're not going to solve this problem tonight, unfortunately, much as I would like to. All right. Plano is really deep water, but please come. Okay, sorry. I'll Good. No. Um, so we were talking about like essences of things and how they affect the usage of things, um, and so I was still thinking about that. And you could you could say that things have natures because in certain circumstances it seems objectively inappropriate to have those things there. So I was trying to distinguish this from virtue. Look, you people disagree about virtue, and is it necessary knowledge? And I would say yes, because you need to have some understanding of virtue for the functioning of the city. So do you need some understanding of the essence of a thing for the functioning of the city? And I think in some circumstances you do, and that's why you don't have like pornographic images around children, because there is an essence to that kind of thing. And it's objectively inappropriate in certain certain circumstances. And if it didn't have an essence, it would Well, that's an interesting point. Um, I believe in the most important of the 20th century Supreme Court decisions about pornography, <laughs> Justice Potter said, uh, I don't know how to define pornography, but I know it when I see it. The point is, Justice Potter was absolutely right. 
What he was doing is employing Wittgenstein. What he's doing is saying, look, there's a roughly, uh, there's a rough bunch of things pertaining to sexual conduct and visual representations of that that we call pornography. There are always going to be some side issues where we're not going to be able to tell. There's going to be a gray area. But that's the way pornography works. And the reason why pornography works that way is because that's the way tigers and chairs and tables and all the stuff in this world work. Now, you tell me that we need to know the essence of justice in order to get it. And I say, why? In other words, I don't know what the essence of justice is, but if I were to go to court and ask for a particular result, you know, ask for a particular ruling, I'd have an idea of what justice is. It's just I wouldn't have its essence. Other people might disagree with you, though. You're exactly right. That's a very intelligent thought. The point is, that possibility of people disputing your deployment of a given word is true for the Gulf of Mexico and tigers and chairs and everything else. So abstractions like justice and virtue also If you think of justice and virtue as an abstraction, but we haven't found that yet. What I've seen is that if you want to know what justice is, I'd recommend you go down to the courthouse and watch what they do there. So... Are you saying that nothing has an essence? Um, I, no, I don't. I think mathematical things have an essence. But objects of sense perception, I'm not familiar with any of the essences of things. And so anything that you can get after induction doesn't have an essence? Not so that I know of. Things that you can get after deduction do. There you go. I, I believe that to be the case. I could be wrong, though. All right. The question is, if you don't, if what you mean by justice is not what goes down, at, what goes on at, at the courthouse, what do you mean? Well, sometimes people call things justice that are clearly injustice. Yeah, I mean, so people sometimes call this the Gulf of Mexico, but the fact that people can use terms in unusual ways that most uh, capable speakers of a language won't agree with, yeah, you know, that's just that's the way language works. But what about when an entire culture has been so? right and who's wrong when people claim something is objectively wrong. I mean, I apart the essence would be a good way to figure that out. Okay, and since you know, well, since you, you're in a position to tell other people that their understanding of virtue is wrong because they don't understand the essence of virtue, but you do, what's the essence of virtue? I'm not even saying that that's necessarily true. I'm just saying that it's not always a specific syntactical difference. Sometimes, I, I, I see what you're saying, and some people will say they have the essence of virtue, and other people will have a, a different definition and also say that they have the essence of virtue. So I am not saying I have the answer to it, but I think there is something there that people, if they've you know, lived in, in normal, healthy circumstances, and I get that that's problematic in some way, will have a certain understanding of the essence of things like virtue. Okay. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an admirable paper topic. If you're looking for paper topics, uh, we're swimming in very deep water here. Any of you that want to take up something like that, knock yourselves out. Look at it through the various books we encountered. All right. um, 
here's the deal. I certainly think that pure abstractions like mathematical things have an essence. I doubt very much that tables or chairs or tigers have an essence. I'm still open, I'm, but I'm open to being convinced. If you can give me some evidence to that effect, I'm game for it. You know? I just have a question. In order to misinterpret something, wouldn't it have to have a basic essence? A, a basic essence? Yeah, like an essence of something. In, in order to like misinterpret justice, wouldn't justice have to have an essence? No, you just have to have different ways of, of defining it, different deployments. Well, in terms of like injustice, like you know it's injustice, but how do we know that? Um, because of the way we define injustice, the same way we know what justice is. But some people might define injustice as justice, like mm. a corrupt judge or something. Some people might describe orange as light red. But you're, sorry. You're, you're crossing categories. Mm -hmm. Colors and completely immaterial things like justice are very different. Are you sure it's a completely immaterial thing? Yeah, it's an immaterial So when you go down to the court, out. you can't expect justice and no justice will be there? It, justice is, is an immaterial thing carried out in specific material circumstances. But color is a material thing. Okay. Color is a wavelength. Life. Here's a fair question. How do you know it's an immaterial thing? Because with color, it's, you can say, like, I detect these photons, these material things. Mm -hmm. And with justice, there is no consistent material thing between any of those circumstances. That might be a way of saying it doesn't have an essence. But you're also arguing that material things don't have essences. And then with that, you're saying that if it isn't material, it can't have an essence. So no, no. Material, it doesn't pure abstractions can have essences, pure ideas. I don't think that, well, let's take a different example. All right. Instead of doing justice, let's do war. All right. um, war refers to a collection of hostile actions that people engage in, in groups. Fair enough. What counts as a war and what doesn't? I doubt that war has an essence. I don't think that it's a pure idea. I think it's a set of human activities. I think justice is a set of human activities. Um, I wouldn't vote for judges if I didn't think they were going to be dishing out justice. I wouldn't hire. I wouldn't vote for legislators. Legis legislators, if I didn't think they were going to enact laws and carrying out those laws and enforcing them, would be what we meant by justice. So why does it need to be a pure abstract essence? China has different laws from us. I think China has justice too. You're on the top, you're on the, the cusp of something really interesting. You got a wonderful paper here. All right. Write down your dissatisfaction and try and organize it. Yeah. It's kind of positivist, isn't it though? Whatever is set down, whatever is done is the thing. Pardon me. Well, um, it's certainly a start. It's not positivistic in the sense that uh, um, I claim that this is all there is to know about that. What I claim is that if justice is not something that people do, then I don't know what it connects to. When you vote for a judge, it's because you have one idea of justice and an idea of what constitutes injustice, and you want one of these things to be carried out and therefore be justice. But you're still sort of writing that out on what is done, right? Well, the question is a question of uh, um, do we have a consensus about justice? That we have. 
But this consensus is just as fuzzy as the definition of anything in this world. There are always going to be those borderline gray cases where we don't know what to say. Some people will say one thing, some people will say another. That's just intrinsic to the, to the definition of things by example. Think of, I mean, when you were taught to use the word justice, and you taught what justice means, were any of you told what the essence of it was? And somehow you managed to deploy the word with some success in talking to other people about justice. Usually when you give class, you talk about the definition of justice. Mm -hmm. or well, the definition will always be provisional, all right? And it's within our linguistic community. You may decide to define it in slightly different ways under different circumstances, all right? I cannot tarry here. Platonic metaphysics is an abyss, all right? Once you get in, it's very hard to pull yourselves out. Those of you who, are, who want to hold on to the idea of essences, I'm all for it. I mean, push it, all right? Write a paper on it, all right? Talk about uh, knowledge and opinion. Talk about certainty. Talk about degrees of certainty. Talk about ways of knowing. I mean, you can take that any way you want, but what you gotta do before you write it is boil it down into one interrogative sentence. That's the hard part, right? All right, let me take this a little further because it's after eight now, and we still haven't solved the problems of ultimate reality. But we, you gave it a good try. In other words, after you got kind of caught up in this, you were actually doing very well. You were one, a wonderful set of interlocutors. After we got over, over that first 15 minutes or so, you were really kind of rocking. I really like this. You're doing very well. All right. Telling me that I'm wrong is your job. The downside is that being mistaken is your job. It doesn't mean that I'm right all the time. It means that undergraduates are here because they need to have knowledge offered to them. Right. That's your job. Right. You're doing great. I mean, tonight you've been actually better than I've seen you in most nights. And most nights I've been pretty happy with this class, but tonight you've been—I mean, you in particular are a real bulldog. I love it. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm looking for. Right? Um, have an idea and push it. And see what happens. Right? The worst that can happen is you'd be wrong, and that actually isn't all that bad. It's your job. All right. That being said, I want to talk about the Fado. I have to. Uh, you know, I, I'm not much of a sentimental person. But I have to admit that in the course of my life, I have actually read the Phaedo and cried. I know I shouldn't, but this is just heartbreaking that a man like this has to die. When he says at the very end, uh, it's made very clear in the Phaedo that all, people, all philosophers are his children, and he gives his inheritance eventually to the, his Children. And we are polemicus. We are the heirs of the argument. You realize at the end that you're another child of Socrates. That's right. He's the father of the city, but the city is much bigger than Athens. Yes, this is Cosmopolis. The cosmos is his polis. He's a citizen of everywhere. And yeah, um, I know, I, it sounds kind of daffy and silly, but yeah, there have been times when I've read this I actually cried because it is so heartbreaking that a man like this has to die. And there's so much brilliance here about epic and comedy and tragedy that you can't help but see that something important is going on here. The least important things are the specific arguments about the, the tuning of a lyre and all for uh, immortality of the soul. Socrates thinks it might be possible. He hopes that it's possible, but there's no way to know. And that's actually a fact. If you do not have divine revelation, it is not possible to know whether there's an afterlife or not. There is no logical mental process that you can engage in to say, aha, the soul lives forever. 
right? It doesn't work. It doesn't mean the soul doesn't live forever. It doesn't mean there isn't a future state of rewards and punishments. What it means is that there are limitations to what you can do with reason, and this is one of them. All right? So he talks to Kibis and Simeus. They're both Pythagoreans. Pythagoreans are those knowledge-worshipping guys, or rather, mathematics-worshipping guys, which is why Socrates likes them. And all through this, there's a constant tension between pleasure and pain. Initially, when he takes off his shackles, right, he says, you know, it's funny. Pleasure and pain are surprisingly similar. In fact, they are. Now, this unshackling is a symbolic foreshadowing of the unshackling of his soul, which is stuck in his body. The real freedom Socrates is going to is the separation of body from soul. Right? So in the same way that shackles keep the prisoner in the cell, the body keeps the soul imprisoned. And Socrates is moving in the direction of that final purification. Yeah. Shortly after he takes his shackles off, there's a line where it says he put his feet on the floor and they remain on the floor for the rest of the day. Uh, I've thought about this a little bit, but what do you think that means? My guess is, is that he has entered the world of human beings for the last time. Yeah. All right. He's always been a, a creature of those borderlines, you know, the uh, spirit of love which mediates between heaven and earth. This is one last stand, literally, on earth. That would be my guess. Now, you must have noticed that this is the dialogue, the only dialogue in which Socrates laughs, and he laughs twice, and in both cases, he laughs at his own death. All right? Crito, the dummy, says, Socrates, what should we do with you when you're, when you're dead? Socrates says, you don't have to do anything to do with me when I'm dead, but you can bury my body. So he clearly anticipates a future state of rewards and punishment. I do too, but it's not a, something I can claim to be certain of. I don't think that reason will take you that far, yeah. When he says he doesn't really care about himself being buried, doesn't that kind of like prove like his kind of disbelief in the gods about how the burial is not... Exactly, that's very smart. I hadn't thought of it, but you're right. Mm -hmm. He's not accepting the rights that would be requisite for uh, someone that believes in the Homeric pantheon. Very good, yeah. That's a good point. You got paper there too. All right. So, Socrates laughs at his own death. Everyone else cries. Right? He talks to his wife and children, and then has somebody get rid of him because he's afraid they're going to break down. Of course they do. So Antipas starts wailing. You're never going to be able to talk to your friends again. But Socrates says, please take her home. And he wants to be with his friends, making his exit. But he assumed that Pythagoreans and Socratic students are not going to get all weepy when the old man dies. But as soon as he drinks the hemlock, everybody breaks down. Why? Because for them it's a tragedy. For him it's a comedy. You will find at the end of the symposium, the same man can write both comedy and tragedy. And here the same man is writing both comedy and tragedy, as he is doing in the symposium as well. So Socrates is a new kind of tragic hero. He's got a tragic flaw. But his flaw is that he's too good. It's an ironic tragedy. Right? It's also an ironic comedy. Because 
Socrates is more than willing to go to the afterlife. In other words, there's nothing to be feared in the afterlife. Spinoza somewhere defines fear as the anticipation of future pain. Socrates doesn't anticipate any future pain. So either it's going to be a long sleep, which I could do with, or alternatively, it's going to be a chance to talk to more interesting people than I talk to down here. All right, sounds good. Um, he prays, he drinks, the, and while the sun is still in the sky. Why? Because the sun represents the form of the good, as it does in all the Platonic dialogues. The sun always means the same thing. So while still in the presence of the Lord, so to speak, or in the light, he decides to make his exit there. He said, why? What's, what's there for me to be afraid of? I'm not a creature of the dark. I'll go now. All right. And his courage is remarkable because, remember, he's not like a Christian intending to, expecting to go straight up to heaven. He says, who knows? Let's roll the dice. On the other hand, death is inevitable and natural. What that means is, is that it's not necessarily a bad thing. The only people that think death is a bad thing are people who pretend to know what they don't know. Socrates has been freed from that malady. His last line is, I owe Asclepius a cock. Now, Asclepius is the god of medicine and healers. What that means is Socrates has been cured of something. Now, there are many different ways in which you might read that. Nietzsche reads it as Socrates saying, life is a disease, as as being a kind of rejection of life. I don't read it that way. My reading of it is that Socrates is now well on his way to a peaceful death, uh, a very satisfactory death. And he owes Asclepius a cock because he's been cured of the of the psychic diseases, the diseases of the soul that beset people on their way to death. So in other words, it's natural for people to be scared of the unknown. We're all born with a fear of death. Philosophy allows him to overcome that. He says philosophy is preparing to die. Walking around in circles is the emblem of the philosophical life. Yeah. Um, is there any significance? At the beginning, he says that Plato was ill, so was he not at the death? Apparently of not. Apparently not. Is it, is it kind of, I don't know. I think it may just be a historical point that he wasn't there. Remember that uh, something like the Theotetus and also the Symposium, these are uh, dialogues which are spoken for an audience. Now, for us, it's very hard to believe that anybody could remember anything as long, word for word, like the symposium. But in fact, it is possible. All right. Um, what happened is this: prior to the advent of writing, particularly the, the mass extension of writing, um, people's memories were much better than they are now, which is why Homeric poets could recite all of the Iliad and all of the Odyssey word for word correct. Remember, well, it's from my history class, but remember that experience actually changes the neural structure of the brain. 
What that means is this. When a culture becomes literate, certain faculties are going to become less used, and as a result, they're going to have fewer neurons and synapses there, and your capacity to do things like remember will decrease quite considerably. But back in Plato's time, when he says, somebody recited for me the entirety of the uh, Apollodorus, recites the entirety of the symposium, that was entirely possible for people back then. In other words, they were able to listen and remember in a way that is unimaginable for people like us. Yeah. So you imagine the Phaedo weren't like experienced firsthand like Plato. It was he was he talked to Simeus and Kibis, right, and got it from them, and then wrote it up. And thereafter, uh, that dialogue is meant to, is just written out, but others are described as being narrated, right? And that was actually possible back then. People's brains worked differently. Right? I know it's strange. The internet has also changed a whole generation very quickly. Right? Uh, you do different things with your brain. Your brain forms itself differently. Different sets of neurons and synapses in different size clusters. Right? Uh, the point then, the big point I'm trying to make is this. Socrates is what I would call the patron saint of rational inquiry. In the Eastern Orthodox Christian Church, Socrates is, is regarded as a pre-Christian saint. They call him Saint Socrates. Why? Because he lived by natural reason. All right? He didn't do anything that was contrary to reason. So he didn't do anything wrong, but he didn't have faith in Jesus, so he doesn't get salvation. Or he, I don't know if he gets it. Maybe he gets it in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. But in the Western Catholic tradition, he ends up in the first circle of Dante's Inferno with all the pagan philosophers. They have no hope, but they don't get punished or tortured because they haven't done anything wrong. All right? Um, I've been writing off and on something I find entertaining um, about a journey through the first circle of Dante's Inferno. I figure if things don't go right for me, I may luck out there. <laughs> you never know. But who would you meet there, and how would these people hang out? I've actually read enough philosophy to, to have some ideas about that. It's actually a lot of fun. Nietzsche and Kierkegaard are real great friends. They only, they only disagree about one thing. Everything else they agree about. And that one thing, yeah, they just trade rub their shoulders. Right? They're both crazy. Uh, I, I won't go into it now, but yeah, I have a, a pretty elaborate idea of what I expect to see in the first circle of hell. Right, but I, I won't go there just yet. Um, finally, um, next week we are doing the symposium, right? and uh, the week after that we are doing the Republic, but one of you wrote me and said, we cannot do the Republic then because people are taking off for Thanksgiving. All right, a couple of points. One, you should know better than to take off for Thanksgiving before you're supposed to go, but it's okay, I understand. Um, I, I get sick of college, too. I, I understand. So I can understand you want to take off. So here's the deal. How about if we do um, the Republic on the Saturday before Thanksgiving? In other words, you get plenty of time then, and we can meet here at noon and do the Republic on the 17th. That would be the Saturday. Does that work for you? Can, can we do Friday? Because I'm going this, that Saturday, I think. Oh, where are you going? Well, my parents schedule a vacation. Oh, look what your like parents Like, way are. back. <laughs> All right, look, I understand. You won't be there. Um, Friday, can we do Friday? What am I doing that Friday? 
Fest? No, I don't think so. I think I'll be in Texas. Okay. So I don't think I can. Saturday I can do. Okay. All right, if you can't do Saturday, then you talk to me and we'll work somewhere. Okay. The rest of you, can you do Saturday then the 17th? Go ahead and say no, it's all right. Okay. Uh, what is the contingency? Oh, okay. And you're going on vacation with his parents? <laughs> that should liven things up. Um, okay. Um, damn. I can't do Sunday because you'll be gone then, too. All right. What about, you the, All what right. about the Saturday after Thanksgiving, though? Saturday after Thanksgiving? Yeah, I guess we could do that. Damn, that's December, though. Okay. You want to do the Saturday after Thanksgiving? What's the date of that? Uh, be the 24th? Yeah, the only thing is that we would have to do the Nicobike and Ethics four days later. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, the 24th then, noon here. Can you do that? I was just saying, the, why don't we do Monday, like the Monday before Thanksgiving break? What, is it, what day is that? Because the Monday before Thanksgiving break, uh, no let me see, I don't know if I'll be here or not. Look, just find, I, I don't care what the date is, just find a date that I can be there, all right? And then the rest of you can choose whatever's most, ex, what's most satisfactory. What dates could you be there? The 17th, the 24th. Sorry, the 24th is doesn't Or, work. if neither of those works, all right, we'll try some other day. Uh, another weekend, I mean, I don't know what to do. Because the Republic is the high point. Yeah. What about December 1st? Because the 24th is actually the weekend of yeah, no, that was yeah, mistaken. okay, yeah, okay. December 1st. Okay, we do the Nicomachean Ethics December 1st. And That's we'll do right. the Republic where we're supposed to do the Nicomachean Ethics. How does that work? But yeah, that would just be... Okay. Yeah, no, it's okay. Um, Thanksgiving is the 24th. Thanksgiving is the 22nd through the 24th. People 20th. are not going to be here on the 20th, which is a Tuesday. Okay. Well, not the 19th. No. 19th is Some a people are leaving on Saturday before Thanksgiving. These guys are leaving on Saturday. Can't do that. All right. I mean, if nothing else works out, we could always just do a thing where we'd like talk me with you. Yeah, it won't be the same, though. We, okay. You were in very good form today. I particularly want you back for more metaphysics. <laughs> have a good time for that. Um, and how gonna, about then? Well, you're going to be gone on the, on the 16th, which is a Friday. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, All right, here's the deal. What? Thursday night. No, I teach Thursday night. Okay. How about this? We'll bump back the Republic and bump back Aristotle one week, and then we'll do a makeup in December for one of the Aristotle readings. We okay with that? Okay. That way everybody can come. There's no class on the 20th, and right. the next week will be the Republic. There we go. Does that work for you? Yeah. All right, everybody can come to that? All right, finally, I wanted to talk to you briefly. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about Socrates' death because he goes out really well. I mean, you can't help but admire the guy. And uh, I've been sick for a long time, and I've had to think about, you know, what mortality means and, you know, what the, where that leaves us. Uh, I was very lucky. Eight years ago, I got diagnosed with cancer. And uh, I got diagnosed with stage four cancer, and there's no stage five, and this is it. They told me I had three to five years. And I'm still around eight years later. It'll be eight years in, in March. So I got lucky, all 
right? But I still have this stuff growing on my spine and on my skeleton, so it's eventually going to kill me, and I know that. So you can either take this as a, a positive or a negative, because let me break this to you gently, you're all going to die too, right? It's not that God's singling me out for special treatment, we all go. But the question is this, how do you come to face to face with your own mortality, and what questions does that prompt you to ask? And uh, I've thought about that actually quite a bit. And uh, the key thing, it seems to me, first of all, is that you don't take death per personally. In other words, it's not God is choosing you to have this horrible thing happen. It happens to everybody. Get used to it. It's important to ask the right questions. Do not ask, why is this happening to me? Ask instead, why is this happening? It's a very different question. It's going to lead you to very different answers. Here's the heads up. Things that have a beginning have an end. So confronting your own mortality is something very much worth thinking about. And it doesn't matter whether you're 10 or 100. We're all going in the same direction. We all have a limited amount of time. And so the question you have to ask yourself is this. Does it matter? When you encounter things, all kinds of stuff that used to worry you, ask yourself, does this matter? And if you look at it, uh, Subspecie eternitatis, from the perspective of eternity, very little matters. There's a very small thing, collection of things that I want to get done before I die. Right? Most of the things that I used to think were really interesting, they're just not that big a deal because they don't matter. What you want to keep on doing to set your, right on, your life on the right course is make sure that you don't get caught up with things that don't matter. You may wonder, What's the best thing that can happen to someone? Here's the answer. Best thing that can happen to someone we get from Dante. Best thing that can happen to a person is that they should love the right things. All the sins in the world are love of the wrong things. 100%. Abstaining from sin means loving what deserves to be loved and taking seriously what deserves to be taken seriously and blowing the rest off. Right. Uh, it used to be when someone cut me off on Interstate 95, I'd get really pissed off. Now, who cares? What difference does it make? Right? Why would I get excited about this? So uh, for a long time, I just stopped being excited about trivial stuff. If it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie Fight Club. It's one of the, one of the things I like about the, the hero of that. He said, um, he was able to let what does not matter truly slide. And that's actually something you should work on. Let what does not matter truly slide. And you will find that a large number of the things that you worry about, like what do other people think of me, doesn't matter. Who cares? You can free yourself from all kinds of mental turmoil by keeping in front of you the question, does it matter? And if it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Leaving off the trivial and just doing what's important, that's the best way to use the limited time that we all have. I mean, teaching is important. Writing the book I'm working on is important because it's a history of the world and it also means I maybe be able to leave some money for my children. But apart from stuff like that, it doesn't matter. I don't get phased. And I've reached a sort of equanimity, which I would recommend to all of you. I stopped being mad at people. 
I'm, I'm not mad at Donald Trump anymore. I mean, I'm not, he's what we deserve. <laughs> no, I mean, and now I'm going to go back and watch TV, and I'm going to see how low the degradation of our public life has actually gone. Because no matter which side wins, side wins tonight, everybody loses. All, none of these people should be voted into office. But that's another question. So what I would emphasize to you is that death, not a bad thing, not a fearful thing. There's nothing to be afraid of. Get over it. All right? I'm a Christian. I'm a Catholic. So I think that there's an afterlife. But I couldn't say that I know that for a fact any more than Socrates does, because I don't have any more evidence than Socrates did. But hope is a Christian virtue, and I hope for that. And I'm not even, I mean, upset about whether I go to heaven or hell. There's no point in having an argument with God. I mean, if he says I go one or the other, I'm not going to tell him, look, you're wrong. There must be some mistake. It doesn't work that way, right? And because there's no point in having an argument with God, whatever he decides is whatever he decides, and it's always right. So I stopped shaking my fist at God. I stopped being mad at him. I stopped telling him how to run the universe. There's a whole bunch of things that I abstain from now that I didn't when I was caught up with a lot of things that don't matter. Here's the deal. God's in charge of the universe. You're not. He's running it right, regardless of how you feel about it. <laughs> so the point is, there's nothing to worry about. Right? What I do, what does worry me, and does actually kind of upset me, is that uh, I have chemo brain. I mean, I had really powerful, I mean, look, I've had surgery and radiation and chemotherapy, none of it worked. And I got so much of it, I can't do any more. So, in other words, once the stuff starts to come back with a vengeance, you know, it's over. On the other hand, look, um, I was lucky to exist at all. It's not like I'm entitled to exist. And if you look at it that way, it's always a benefit. You know, whatever you get of life, it's all to the good. It's more than we deserve. None of us deserves to exist, all right? So take the gift that you've been given and do something with it, all right? That's something to think about because at your age, nobody believes in death. At my age, people do, all right? And uh, it's one of the most important questions in living a worthwhile life, all right? What am I gonna be remembered for? What will I have achieved? And have I achieved both kinds of arete, excellence? I make the, I'd say there are two lists of virtues. The, and I got this distinction from David Brooks, the guy who writes for the Times once in a while. He teaches at Yale occasionally too. But he said, there are the resume virtues. And in your phase in life, you're mostly working on the resume virtues. You get a degree or a couple of degrees. You get a job, you get some experience, you're getting virtues that are going to show up in your resume. But there's another set of virtues that don't have anything to do with your resume. These are what David Brooks calls the eulogy virtues. In other words, when somebody's speaking over your body, they're not going to say what your grade point average was, because no one's going to care. Right? That's, a, that's a resume virtue. The eulogy virtues were, were you compassionate? Were you benevolent? Did you do the best thing that you could to improve the world around you? Right. Did you take care of your real obligations, and did you ignore the ones that aren't real? Those are going to be in your, those are your eulogy virtues. The first half of human life is largely a question of make of creating those resume virtues. But when you're looking at the prospect for the end of your life, what you're looking for is the eulogy virtues. How will you be remembered by the people who knew you, not the people who looked at you as a piece of paper? Well, that's something worth thinking about. 
two different sets of virtues. That's a distinction in Arte they didn't introduce. Maybe they have forms, I don't know. That being said, yeah, I know. I will see you all next week. We are going to do the symposium. Read this harder than you ever have. Now, who's going to present the symposium? Okay, here's the deal. There are seven speeches. And there are three gentlemen here and four ladies there. Work it out amongst yourself. You each do one speech. And I will see you all next week.